Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your love to us. Ask God that you would uh, speak to us in a supernatural way, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us each in a personal way, individually, that um, you would guard the words that I say that are taken uh, wrongly. Um, I pray that I represent you well, that uh, your heart comes through, um, not in a judgmental manner, but in a way that would be challenging. Ask God for your grace to fill us and for your mercy to fill us. In Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 4, starting in verse 13, and then we're going to skip a little bit into chapter 5 up to verse 6. And um, just the forewarning that um, this is kind of a tough teaching, and uh, I apologize ahead of time. Um, There are some things that are kind of close to my heart in this, and uh, so it might come out a little bit, even though I try to be even-keeled, which I think I'm pretty good at. But anyway, let's start. Um, Tonight we're going to look at at things people trust in that aren't really all that trustworthy. And people put too much stock in what really doesn't matter. And sometimes what we're doing is walking on an unstable type of foundation instead of walking on solid ground. And what, what are some of the false securities people trust in today? Um, stock market, real estate, uh, gold, commodities, whatever, foreign investments, oil, you name it, it's there. And what James is going to talk about in the verse that we're going to look at today isn't just good advice, but a critical warning that if it's ignored could mean that we're living a life of evil. Verse 13, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Now, James is warning us against making plans for the future. Now, that doesn't seem too bad, does it? In fact, we often look down on people who don't make plans. And you have to plan ahead. Many of the Proverbs uh, encourage us and teach us to do this. So, so what is he saying? So just a little bit of background to this to, to give you a better idea of what's going on here. Most of the wealth of the Roman Empire was accumulated in one of two ways. And one was being a landowner. A landowner who was actually from a higher social class, being an aristocrat. And, and there were many Jewish aristocrats at the time. And they made their wealth from farmers who were actually their tenants, who were paying them rent so that they can use the land that they owned to farm. And then from the crops that they produced, they also made money from those. And so James is going to address them when we get to chapter 5. But a, another way was of, being, uh, of making wealth was being a merchant. And a merchant didn't have the social status, but they had a way to become wealthy through trade. And not all merchants were wealthy, but the reason that you became a merchant is that you wanted to become wealthy, that you were seeking wealth. And here's where James is addressing these merchants at the end of chapter 4. See, the Jews were really great traders of the ancient world, and the Roman world just gave them ample opportunity to use their commercial talents by offering them roads. And offering them safe passage on those roads, protection from the Romans. And this was an age when cities were founded and the cities being founded needed citizens. And Jews were offered citizenship because the founders of the cities weren't dumb. They they knew that if the Jews were offered citizenship, that it would also bring trade. It would bring money. 
and money that could build their city up and give them more accolades and more more things to attract others and to put down a, a competing city and and have say, hey, we have a gym over here, 24 hour and and then offer more than the city nearby. So so in verse 13, you have a picture of someone planning out where they're going to do some trade for a year in order to make some money. And much like it is today, the primary markets for goods were cities, their towns. And common business practice is to project sales, right? To project profits. So let's see why making these plans can be so dangerous. Verse 14. Whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even, even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Verse 14 tells us to be, be aware that we don't really know what the future holds for us or how long we'll even be alive. And James rebukes the kind of heart that lives and makes plans apart from a constant awareness of the sovereignty of God. He rebukes the underestimation of our own limitations. And James asks us to consider the fragility of human life, knowing that we live only at the permission of God. And our lives are really short, like a vapor that quickly vanishes. Verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So James isn't so much discouraging us from planning and doing only from planning and doing apart from a reliance on God, because God knows what will happen tomorrow. And James isn't suggesting inaction. He wants us to realize that we need to have a complete dependence on God, that it needs to line up with the Lord's will. All of our plans are to be submitted to the, the will of the Lord. And we should recognize that he controls the future. See, it's absolute arrogance to think that we can live independent of God. And this arrogance is the essence of sin. The root of all sin is this proud independence, as was the case with Lucifer. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, Isaiah tells us of Lucifer's proud independence. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will also sit on the mount of congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. See, many of us submit to the Lord's will and word only and don't mean it in our hearts and through our actions. Many of us throw a lot of religious language around without much substance to it. And Jesus was not this type of type of person to just kind of throw this religious language around. And he often called out publicly those who did that. So this is more about what's going on inside our hearts than it is what we actually say. It's important to consider God's will in all of our plans and to have that as a priority in our planning. And even when we have things planned out to be open enough to God so that he can change whatever we've planned in order to do the will of God at any time. Life is short. The average American lifespan is 77 and a half to 80 years. Almost half of my life is over. And we need to spend our time doing things that are worthwhile and do things that will make an eternal impact. And we spend too much of our life, too much of our time, too much of our energies and efforts, too much of our money on things that are temporal, on things not eternal and things that will just go away. And we waste so much time doing things of the flesh. There are times I've wasted an entire day, especially when I was younger. I could spend an entire day watching my black and white television. 
or playing video games on my Atari 2600. And there were more important things for me to do, like checking in on a friend that I knew was having a hard time. How I wish I could have some of those times back when I could have invested more of my time more profitably. How much time I wasted, especially in my youth. And we waste a lot of time, don't we? We need to invest more of our time into things that profit eternally. And something we don't have to do is to be paralyzed because we don't know what the Lord's will is exactly for our lives. Or keep saying, Lord willing, or if the Lord wills. Have you ever met someone like this? They always say, Lord willing, or, or something to that effect. They bug me. You going to the bathroom? Lord willing. Some things you don't have to question about whether it's the Lord's will, right? Just commit yourself and all your plans to to the will of God and be open to God's guidance. Some of your plans aren't within God's will and we need to remain open to his purposes and to change according to his purposes. Not to be so set on our agenda, but to keep in mind that God's agenda can change ours. It's okay. And if we don't live this way, we're subject to arrogant boasting. Verse 16. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. See, we shouldn't boast in our plans or our agenda. Some Christians boast in their well-thought-out plans, and such boasting is evil. James corrects us about leaving the Lord out of our plans. He's saying that we need to realize that God is actually the one really in control. And leaving God out is arrogance on our part. The sin is an arrogant attitude of feeling secure enough in your own plans to leave God out of your plan. But James is going to give us some direction on this. He's going to give us a way to be aggressively good and aggressively active in verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. James knows that it's much easier to think about and talk about humility and dependence on God than it is to actually live it. Yet he makes the mind of God plain and simple. He says, as we know these good things, we're accountable to do those things. And if we know that we are to do something and it's good and we don't do it, that's sin. It's a sin of omission and failing to do which those things I ought to do. And James tells us not to focus on our future plans, but on what we already know, what God wants from our lives, what we already know that he wants us to do. And if we obey what we know to do already, then we are obedient and our future is that much more promising, that much more hopeful. And a lot of us want to do good things in the future for our church, for our families, for our friends, for our community. But we've left something God wanted us to do undone. And James has a word for such absence of action, and it's called sin. Are some of us making plans for the church and the ministries we're involved in, but we haven't forgiven someone who actually comes to the church? Do we need to forgive someone in our life? Or maybe you know you should be serving in some capacity, but you're not. Are we planning a great vacation or anticipating a great career move, but we haven't paid our tithe? Or apologize for lying about someone or gossiping about someone? And James is saying we can't get fixated on the future and not have God's blessing because we don't listen to and obey what he has already told us to do. We make our own plans instead of obeying what we already know. And some of us don't know if we're not doing something he's instructed us to do. And we need to ask God to bring that to our attention, that we need to pray to him. And as we pray and believe in that, he'll speak to us about that. 
So at the end of chapter 4, James addresses those who are seeking wealth, such as the merchants. And in chapter 5, he moves on to the rich who are more established in their riches, the aristocratic landowners. And some background about these landowners. Do you know most of the Roman Empire was actually rural? Only about 10% of the empire was cities. But that's all you hear about when you study Roman history, isn't it? The great aqueducts and the gymnasiums and the coliseums and the libraries and the roads and how they did plumbing and brought water from here to there and all this stuff. But 90% of the Roman Empire was rural. And much of the wealth from these rich landowners was made off the backs of slaves and of serfs from the land. So here, James is addressing these landowners. Keep in mind that James wants to show the ultimate worthlessness of all earthly riches, and he wants to show us how the rich are likely to have a detestable character that's far from godly. Remember, James loves his readers, and he wants to prevent them from placing their hopes and dreams on earthly things. Verse 1, chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Some of you are thinking, isn't this hypocritical of James to use this type of condemning speech? And it, it might appear that way, but notice how James appeals to God's judgment rather than to human vengeance. And notice how James uses really strong words, but he doesn't have a spirit of violence. And James says that judgment is coming for the wealthy, but it's God's judgment, not his. And he was prophetic with his words because just several years later, after he wrote this letter, the Jewish aristocracy was wiped out from that revolution that we talked about a couple weeks ago and last week. Now, I know that there are rich people who are godly people. I believe that this rebuke for the rich is for those who are ungodly. But we have to admit that it is easier for the rich to have a greater tendency to live independently of God, isn't it? Notice James says the rich should weep and howl because of a coming misery. He's telling them that if if they only knew what they were actually doing, that they would weep and howl at the miserable judgment coming to them. And we're often envious of what the rich have, but James says the rich are certainly not in a favored position because their wealth has given them a false security. How secure is it anyway? Where's your money safe? You hear about the current stock market, the current real estate markets, the banks, the savings and loans, different financial institutions, they're all in trouble. How inflation is accelerating, how recession is right around the corner, where consumer debt is at an all-time high and how people live on credit. That money's not yours. Well, we'll put it in gold or precious metals or commodities. That'll hedge against inflation. It's all artificial. None of that stuff has true value. True value is only in spiritual things. Those earthly things are only worth what someone's willing to pay for it, right? Like this whole real estate implosion. I have friends who are telling me what a great deal they got when they first bought their home several years ago and then telling me how much it's worth now, which is a much larger number than they actually bought it for. But it's only worth what someone's willing to pay for it. It's not a real value. You might say something is worth such and such amount, but someone has to be willing to pay that amount. And in really serious economic downturns like the Great Depression, what do you think your investments are worth? You think it's worth whatever you think it's worth, but 
you only can get what someone's willing to pay for it. If you and your family are dying of starvation and suffering from dehydration, a piece of bread and a cup of water is going to be worth much more to you than any investment you have. So we need to invest in things that have true value, spiritual things that have eternity attached to it. Verses 2 and 3, Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. The wealth of the rich is not going to last. It's going to bring about judgment. And knowing that, James has carefully crafted what he's written with a vivid imagery and words that would get to the heart of someone from the Middle East because in this region, he knows what to hit on in terms of what the wealthy value. And James has a word for the decay of each of those items of wealth. He lists three kinds of wealth and the corruptible nature of these riches as a witness against him. He says, your riches are corrupted. These were their agricultural riches, like grain. A main source of their riches, as we mentioned earlier, was that they were landowners who made huge profits from renting out their land to farmers and also from selling of the crops from their land. James is addressing the source of their wealth that they're so heavily reliant on. Another word for corrupt is rotten. So this is saying that this source of wealth, your agricultural goods, they're rotten. Then James hits on garments. Clothing was a major sign of wealth at this time. They didn't have designer handbags or watches, cell phones, you know, other gadgets to say that I have money, right? So in, in Genesis 45, verse 22, it tells us about Joseph giving away garments. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. This verse was giving everyone who read it an idea about how rich Joseph really was. How rich he was to do such a thing. Many people had very few garments. Most had one, let alone give away several of them. And they had to be fitted and and the materials weren't readily available. Joseph was really rich. And several years ago, I went on a mission trip to Russia and I noticed how many of the people there had one outfit. And I spent a week in Kirov teaching at a Bible college there, and most of them wore the same outfit all week. And I also spent time in Moscow at that Bible college more than a week, and I noticed that the Russian students there had one outfit. But the Americans changed every day. Same thing when I went to Kenya or another developing country. And I noticed how people had very few articles of clothing or or just one. And it's a sign of wealth for us today. And James is saying it's going to be gone by moths eating away at them. And lastly, he brings up gold and silver being corroded. And this is talking about rust. Now you're thinking, pure gold and silver don't rust. The Bible's false. No, you're right. I mean, James points... James' point is that these items that you think are impossible to decay, they'll be gone. Things that we think are immune to decay, they'll waste away. And many of us are guilty of this today. We're trying to protect ourselves financially by hoarding wealth, hoarding gold in these uncertain times. And yes, you're wise to do what the Lord 
to do with what the Lord has given you to be a good steward of those things. It's wise to be a good steward and to to take care of the things that he's given to you. But where's your heart? How much do you need? Is the source of your income what you're relying on and not God? Is it your belongings that give you status and self-worth, not God? Do you think your investments or assets are going to save you? Or do you think God's going to save you? Verse 3, And their corrosion will be witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And here's a warning from James. The desire for these things is like rust eating away at your body and soul. It's going to take you over. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. James is telling his readers that they will eventually be wiped out with this false hope. To live your life for material things is wasting your time and effort on things that are going to waste away anyway. And it's going to lead to a life of self-destruction. On the day of judgment, it'll be revealed that those who live their lives in an arrogant independence will be heaping up earthly treasure instead of heavenly treasure. That all the accumulated wealth you have will be worthless in the approaching day of God's judgment. In the next three verses, four, five, and six, we have an example of the social passion of the Bible. And these are just three verses out of the many verses in the Bible to show us the heart of God and how he views social justice. Now, what I'm going to share about now is it's not going to be all inclusive. It's too big of a topic to try to cover in like one sermon. You can actually do an entire year study just on this. But if you want to get a better idea of the Bible's cry for social justice, read Amos. Whose, whose name means burden. And there's no other book like the Bible that speaks so intensely against social injustice. And no other book that has been so empowering to force social change to those who seriously regard it. And there's no way to read God's word and not be changed by it. You can't read about God's views on social justice and not do something about it. See, the Bible doesn't condemn wealth as much as it is de- demanding the responsibility of the wealthy. The Bible is insistent in informing us of the perils that surround those who are wealthy and how the selfishness of the rich is a characteristic that's really easy for them to come by. And I personally know a lot of really, really wealthy people. And some of them are, are generous, but most of them are stingy as heck. I'm like, You know, in our Taekwondo ministry, I have families in there that don't have very much at all. There's a single mom in there that doesn't have very much. And she always gives me things. She always gives my daughters things. And those are like the most precious gifts to me. And I feel really bad for taking them because she's often come by to ask if we have food here. And I've asked her to stop because I know that she struggles to make ends meet. And I have some relatives who don't have much, but... They're so generous with my family and my kids. And their generosity really humbles me. And on the other hand, I have some really, really wealthy friends and relatives who haven't given my daughters jack. (laughs) And I'm talking like mega rich, like tens of millions, hundreds of millions. Nothing. I hope that they're listening to this teaching. And it's not that I'm expecting something from them, but it's just the fact that those who have so much can be so selfish and those that don't have much at all can be so generous. 
That's really sad. Verses four through six. Indeed, the wages of wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. There seems to be three offenses that the rich are warned about here. One is cheating the workers of fair compensation and of fair wages. A second one is becoming involved in self-indulgence. And lastly, in in an attempt to hoard the wealth that the rich have, they condemn and they murder the innocent who are really no threat at all to them. The first offense is cheating the worker of fair compensation and fair wages, becoming more selfishly rich by oppressing the poor and the laborers. And the law of Moses forbade withholding wages even for a night. And if the worker cried out to God, God would avenge them. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. Many of the day laborers were dependent on their daily wages to provide food for themselves and their families. Most of the crops were harvested during or around summertime, and so extra laborers were needed during those times, so extra hands were hired to do work. But then their labor was taken advantage of. And a really rich landlord who didn't even need the money could withhold those wages and cause the worker and their families to go hungry. Their children, the elderly that they were taken care of. Families who were already susceptible to death, sickness, because they were already on the brink of salvation or starvation. They are on the brink of salvation. But these guys made so much more money and still such an injustice was done. And some of these rich aristocrats would support some like public building project, right? With their names attached on it, of course. Much like today. I'll I'll support that thing. Is my name going to be on it? You can see it all on the college campuses or any library or whatever. You see it there. But they wouldn't pay fair wages to a worker in a timely manner. A wage so small compared to what the rich guys would make. And the wages they did get were barely enough to live off of. The worker didn't have anything extra to save. He lived off of that wage. And so not getting paid for even a day meant... His family's going hungry. So the Bible is very clear about fair wages in a timely manner. I'm going to throw out some references. We're not going to read all these, but I just want to give you an idea that this is what the Bible supports. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 28. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 13. Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. Luke chapter 10, verse 7. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. That's not even all of them. This injustice is done today. I have a friend whose family owns large farms in the Central Valley. And in talking to him about this very subject, he was telling me about his family and how they treated the workers compared to some of the other farms that exploited their workers. Those workers can't do anything about the abuse. They're afraid because most of them are not here legally. They're aliens. Not from space. 
aliens, as in the Bible was saying, and they don't want to risk deportation because they need to send money back home. They need to take care of their families, their elderly, their kids. And some of us aren't in this position of being an actual landowner, but we do have a responsibility in this matter. We do have a responsibility to support fair trade. We need to support greater equity in trade. And right now we have some terribly abusive trading conditions that have stripped away the previous rights people had and producers had, workers had, and we've marginalized so many people just so we can have a cheaper product. And I don't think that your average person is malicious and wants to put someone in a low-paying factory job or expose them to harsh chemicals on a farm. But I think we either don't know or we don't want to know. And I think if we just stopped long enough to think about a person on the other side, that if you can just attach a soul, a heart, a face, a person with a family that's on the other side of the products that we buy, we would hopefully be more socially conscientious of our purchases. And the ways we support trade or businesses telling of how we view humanity and how we view humanity through the eyes of God. Businesses that don't have a regard to fair trade don't care about livable wages. They don't care about child labor. They don't care about gender equality, environmental stewardship. They care about the dollar. Whatever happened to human dignity and the desire to give hope to somebody? How does making somebody shut down their farm or focusing or forcing them into a low paying factory job preserve dignity? How does that give them hope? Just because we don't want to pay as much for a product? We're the wealthiest nation in the entire world. We are the richest people in the entire world. Some of us spend more on a tank of gas than others in another country make in an entire month. Spend the extra dollars to buy a fair trade product. It's not going to kill you. Let's be a little bit more concerned with the world and not our materialism, our consumerism. There's poverty all over the world. And from this one issue of poverty comes human trafficking, comes AIDS, comes commercial sexual exploitation, gender abuse, lack of medical care, access to education. And you know, if, if no one bought any, anything from these businesses with exploited working conditions, they wouldn't exist. And by choosing to substitute ethically traded goods for conventional ones, we have the opportunity to put our faith into action. The term Lord of Sabaoth is interesting. This is not Lord of the Sabbath. This is a term that goes back to Old Testament, where such a title for God refers to God as the great warlord, or the Lord of the armies, or the Lord of hosts, meaning the God with vast armies. This is a war title. And when we allow workers to be cheated, then God becomes our enemy. He goes to war against us. God doesn't favor the rich. He's a Lord of justice. And you know what? My family is not perfect with this. 
We try really hard to live in this way and to be mindful of these things, but I can guarantee that if you go into my home, you'll probably find something that isn't fair trade organic. You probably will. But we all need to remember God's stance on exploitation and look for ways for us to change. And secondly, we notice this offense of self-indulgence. Verse 5. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. This is addressing how the wealthy live indulgently without regards to others, much like how the rich man had little regards for Lazarus in, Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And this verse is talking about how the rich were able to selfishly consume so much meat in a day of slaughter while the poor were hungry or starving, had nothing to eat. Meat was generally unavailable to the poor other than, you know, public festivals or because it was just too expensive. They couldn't afford it. And I remember serving refugees at a camp in Southeast Asia uh, in my college days. And while we were providing this medical relief, uh, our team, they, pr- they gave us meat every meal, breakfast, lunch and dinner. I was so humbled. I, I was almost teary-eyed at every meal, just reluctantly eating it because I knew that at that refugee encampment, they only had meat during a festival or when an animal was no longer useful. And here they fed us meat for every meal while they only had it like maybe a couple times an entire year. Having so little, they gave us so much. And back in these Bible days, there was no refrigeration. So when an animal was slaughtered, they they ate as much as they could because whatever was left was going to be jerky. And it was full on shameful gluttony, fulfilling the desires of luxurious pleasure because they would want to have this full on protein rich gorge party. And whatever was left was preserved. And the only way to preserve meat was to dry it and salt it. So they ate all they could and they saved the rest without any regard to those who didn't have anything to eat. And the selfish rich used their possessions to gratify their own love of comfort and to satisfy their own lusts while forgetting any type of duty to other people, namely those who were starving. So what we see here is a picture of the rich being fattened like an animal for the day of their own slaughter, fattening themselves up, mistaking their short-lived pleasure for eternal grief. And living a life of short-lived luxury for eternal death. And this selfishness and disregard for others leads to the destruction of your soul. This sin is different than the first one that James points out. The first one dealt with exploitation. This second one is dealing with people who have a lavish lifestyle while others go hungry, are in need, and they they can do nothing about it. Much like in chapter 4, verse 17, where James tells us it's a sin not to do something we know that we ought to do. Are we guilty of this? Are we more preoccupied with our self-indulgence than helping those in need? Are we out fattening ourselves up on things when there are those out there with nothing? And I'm not saying that we can't enjoy ourselves, but do we have to be so gluttonous? Why don't we just... Buy a fair trade item so we're not as self-indulgent. They cost more, so there's like a built-in mechanism not to spend as much, right? It also supports others with fair wages, and we can share in our affluence as Americans. And maybe you just don't need so much stuff. How about living a life of simplicity? This is just 
unimaginable to us in the Western world, isn't it? The pursuit of happiness is our sacred right as Americans. Extravagance is the norm. Oscar Hardman writes, It is an injury to society as well as an offense against God when men pamper pamper their bodies with rich and dainty foods and seriously diminish their physical and mental powers by excessive use of intoxicants. Luxury in every form is economically bad. It is provocative to the poor who see it flaunted before them, and it is morally degrading to those who indulge in it. The Christian who has the ability to live luxuriously but fast from all extravagance and practices simplicity in his dress, his home, and his whole manner of life is therefore rendering good service to society. Frugality is a service to God and to each other. It frees us from concern and involvement with a multitude of desires that would make it impossible for us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before our God. Micah 6.8 Much of the freedom that comes from frugality is freedom from spiritual bondage caused by financial debt. This kind of debt is usually incurred by buying things that aren't necessary. And when this debt is so large that it just overwhelms us, that it it just kind of weighs us so heavily, it shrinks our sense of self-worth. It darkens our hope for the future. It desensitizes us to the needs of others. Because we're so worried about ourselves. And when the rich abuse or misuse their wealth, you can usually find misery for those on the lower income scales. This is so this is so evident in the developing world where a few live in mind boggling luxury while the masses are in abject poverty, like in Russia. Moscow is the most expensive city to live in on this planet with the most billionaires within a single city. Not millionaires, billionaires. Yet in that same city, I was around people who wore the same outfit all week long. How can that be? This brings us to the third offense where such living conditions often cause death to those who are, excuse me, who are forced to live that way so a master can overindulge. Verse six, you have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Often those who are poor and without power in this world have little recourse to justice. But their cries are heard by God, who guarantees ultimately to right every wrong, to right every injustice. And there was judicial oppression for the poor and even judicial oppression for those who stood up for the poor. A poor person didn't have the same clout or representation as someone who was rich. And it was an unfair fight. And the poor were taken advantage of because they didn't have money to support themselves with this. And James was known as James the Just. He stood up to those who were the oppressors. And for that, he was killed for it, ultimately. And the oppressors condemn and murder the poor and those who stand up for them because they don't want their lifestyle to be disturbed. They'd rather have their life and silence the abusers or the abused and silence the critics. And the oppressed belongings or wages could be taken or withheld and to do so would be risking that person's life. Jailing the main income earner for a family or taking that person's means of producing an income such as tools was sentencing them to a further hardship and possibly death. This happens today. 
A wealthy person who commits a terrible crime can get away with so much more with their high-powered attorneys, and while the poor are left to kind of fend for themselves on public resources which are really limited and spread really thin. And it's not just developing nations, but people in more developed nations like ours that are also abused in terms of uh, the power in our workplaces or in our government. And often we, we think that we have this right to luxury when in fact we don't. Luxury is often bought off the backs of others. There's often someone on the other side being oppressed. You know, wealth can't save us. We can't take it with us when we die. We can't buy our way into heaven. God doesn't need our money. What does a God who has everything want from us? He wants what only you can give him. Your obedience, your love. No one else can give that to him. Only you can choose to obey and to love God. And many of us struggle with money. We don't faithfully give. We don't have generous hearts. We're in serious debt. But know that if you're just hoarding your money, that it'll bring you misery. And you don't have to be wealthy to hoard money. And for those of us who don't have very much, you don't have to be rich to be a big giver. And when we die, we will go where our heart goes. If our heart is with Jesus, we'll go with him. If our heart is with money, then we'll go with that. And some of us are fooling ourselves when we say we have family matters or business concerns that necessitate our hoarding of money. Some of those cases may be true, but on those that are tinkering, you can't fool God. James is not saying something new here. He's putting what his brother Jesus said in a different way in Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. It's all about seeking God, seeking his righteousness, seeking his kingdom. First, everything else follows. Let's pray. God, uh, I pray, Lord, that um, you would stir in our hearts the things you would desire us to change. That we would start looking at people and not uh, material goods. That we would keep in mind that um, the things that we do affect others. In Jesus' name, amen.